All right, so a little intro to the Hippocratic Oath. Who can tell me the three spheres of government that God has established? Adeline. Family, church, and state, all, of course, comprised of individuals responsible for self-government as well. And what disciplinary instruments has God given to each one? Adeline. The sword for the state. The sword for the state, the rod for the family, and the church has given the... The keys. The keys of church discipline, which allows um, the officers of the church to excommunicate individuals from the sacraments or to reinstate them to the sacraments and to monitor you know, membership, etc. Now, have all three governments always been faithful to use their disciplinary instruments, the rod, the keys, and the sword, for justice? Of course not. What about civil governments? What about Louisiana or the United States? Have we always been faithful to use the sword or in our day and age, it would be the gun, or the electric chair, or the noose. Have we always been faithful to use the gun in the name of justice? Of course not. Of course not. Sometimes, but often, often we fail in that because our nation, as you well know, is apostatizing. Our nation often wields the sword to um, execute little children and pull their body parts off of them and sell their organs to the highest bidder, often used as the sword to persecute Christians and to engage in tyranny and domination all over the world, as you all know. But with all of that stated and talking about the misuse of swords, the misuse of power, I'd like to take a moment to talk about doctors. Doctors don't have the sword, but what do they have? I'm sorry? They have the syringe, okay, yes. What, anything else? Adeline? They have the scalpel. That's right. And there is an analogy between a king with his sword and a doctor with his scalpel. Because a scalpel can be used to cut out a cancer, can it not? And it can also be used to slice a throat. A scalpel can be used for good or for evil, just like a sword, just like a rod. And there's another analogy between doctors and tyrants. And that is that the patient, so to speak, is very vulnerable. Under a tyranny, the peasants, the, the middle class, the little guy, he's vulnerable to the tanks and the AK-47s and the fighter jets and the, the numbers of military units that can be uh, sent to, a, to persecute and to tyrannize the population. But for a doctor, the patient is also vulnerable. How come? Because the patient is sick, elderly, Preborn baby or sedated, unconscious. And there's really no more vulnerable place for you to be than laid out on a table, unconscious, with your chest cavity open. And so how do we keep tyrants restrained? How do we keep doctors restrained? Is there anything that we can do or anything that has been done over the course of human history to restrain doctors from using their power for evil? Are doctors holy and perfect and completely and utterly trustworthy? Of course not. They're humans just like everyone else. And so we need some means of restraining them. And one of the ways doctors have been restrained and checked, because they do have a massive amount of power and there is a a massive disparity between 
the power of a doctor and their patients, which oftentimes makes um, opportunity for injustice. Because of that, for thousands of years, doctors have sworn an oath to become a doctor. They have sworn an oath, taking upon themselves um, either the blessings for keeping the oath or the cursings for not keeping the oath. And does anyone know what you call an oath that you swear to your own harm? Such as, I will do this or else I receive these consequences. What do you call that particular type of an oath? Self-maledictory. It just rolls off the tongue so well. A self-maledictory oath. A self-maledictory oath. That, in fact, is the oath that God takes, which is why humans take it. God says that he will love us, he will save us, he will um, restore the children of Abraham and and give to them the world. And if he doesn't do it, he says that um, he would bear the very brunt of it himself. He swears by his own name. That's a self-maledictory oath. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're taking a self-maledictory oath. And it comes with curses if you don't take it worthily, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. So doctors have taken self-maledictory oaths. And um, they have held themselves accountable and they have held one another accountable in their guilds and in their various professional uh, organizations, etc. And that's been somewhat helpful at restraining the evil that a doctor can do. Can oaths restrain evil ultimately? No. No, okay, of course not. But oaths can restrain generally religious and virtuous moral people. And help guide them in to do what is right. Like the Constitution of the United States. That is our covenantal documents. When someone becomes a city, they a citizen, they swear an oath to that particular document. You don't have to swear oaths as citizens because you're born under the covenant. But but that covenant, it guides us as a moral and religious people. If we're not a moral and religious people, as John Adams says, then the Constitution can't do much for us. But as far as we are moral and religious people, the Hippocratic Oath can, to some degree, restrain doctors. And uh, are there other oaths? Yes. Are there other laws, other policies? Yes. But the, one of the most ancient is the Hippocratic Oath. And so we're going to read it together. It's only going to take a few seconds <clears throat> to read. It's only uh, three paragraphs, three or four paragraphs. But uh, I'm going to read it for you out loud, and you have the paper right there in front of you. So uh, follow along with me. It begins with addressing the parties of the Treaty of the Covenant, I swear by Apollo, the physician. Now, of course, you know that when you swear a covenant, you swear by one higher than yourself. God, of course, cannot swear by anyone higher than himself because he's God, so he swears by himself. But men swear by God, which is why oftentimes people use the name of God in swear words or curse words. They're taking a a maledictory oath or cursing you in some way. It's sort of an ancient custom. And so he swears... This, this is obviously not written by a Christian. This is written during the times of classical, classical uh, Athens. But he swears by Apollo, the physician, and Escapolis. Say that with me. Escap- no, here it is. Escalapius. Escalapius. Not easy to pronounce. Escalapius, the surgeon. Likewise, Hygieia and Panacea. And call all the gods and goddesses to witness that I will observe and keep this underwritten oath to the utmost of my power and judgment. So you see the parties involved in the covenant, that is the the, uh, doctor and the gods, and all the gods and goddesses as witnesses of this covenant. You see that? It's like a marriage uh, ceremony. You swear an oath to one another and to God and before witnesses. And that offers some restraining power to sin. 
Moving on to the next paragraph, the doctor says, I will reverence my master who taught me the art. Equally with my parents will I allow him things necessary for his support and will consider his sons as brothers. I will teach them my art without reward or agreement, and I will impart all my acquirement, instructions, and whatever I know to my master's children as to my own, and likewise to all my pupils who shall bind and tie themselves by a professional oath, but to none else. With regard to healing the sick, so that first paragraph is his relationship to his, what we might think of today as an employer, and also his colleagues, other doctors. Now this next paragraph is his relationship and the terms of that relationship with patients. With regard to healing the sick, I will devise and order for them the best diet according to my judgment and means, and I will take care that they suffer no hurt or damage. Nor shall any man's entreaty prevail upon me to administer poison to anyone. I cannot be bribed, so to speak. Neither will I counsel any man to do so. Moreover, I will give no sort of medicine to any pregnant woman with a view to destroy the child. You notice that there in the first original Hippocratic Oath, not the more modern ones, but the original was no abortion and no poison. That means no euthanasia, probably. Further, I will comport myself and use my knowledge in a godly manner. I will not cut for the stone, but will commit that affair entirely to the surgeons, which means he's going to allow the specialists to do what they do. You know how different doctors have different specialties. You don't want to be the one cutting open people and pulling out a gallbladder if your specialty is uh, foot warts. So you let the various specialists do their particular tasks. And that's a part of the oath as well. Moving on to the next paragraph. Whatsoever house I may enter, my visit shall be for the convenience and advantage of the patient. And I will willingly refrain from doing any injury or wrong from falsehood, and in an especial manner from acts of an enormous, amorous, amorous nature, whatever may be the rank of those who it may be my duty to cure, whether mistress or servant, bond or free. So in his covenant to do no harm, he's going to show no partiality to the rich or the poor, etc., Final paragraph, whatever in the course of my practice I may see or hear, even when not invited, whatever I may happen to obtain knowledge of, if it be not proper to repeat it, I will keep sacred and secret within my own breast. If, so you see there, because he's a doctor, he has given certain privileges into people's private lives and private information. He's going into their homes, right? Their families are gathered. And so this is where you get the uh, origins of the uh, doctor confidentiality agreements. Like your doctor can't share your information with, uh, well, he's not supposed to share your information with the tyrant or with anyone. If I faithfully observe this oath, may I thrive and prosper in my fortune and profession and live in the estimation of posterity. So there, there you see the blessings of keeping this covenant and the blessings would go on to him and to his posterity. So you see the covenantal succession to his children and uh, continued success. Or, and here's the curses, or on the breach thereof of this covenant, may the reverse be my fate. And that's why we call it a self-maledictory oath. So that's the Hippocratic Oath. Everyone see? Mm -hmm. So just a quick review. Who are the parties involved in this oath? Uh, The gods. The gods and goddesses and The the doctor. That's right. And you can also see that the doctor has certain terms and conditions he must keep for the patients. Um, The gods in particular, and you might want to at least highlight this on your oath right here. 
These, these would make great quiz questions. The gods in particular is the god of healing, Esculapius. Esculapius. A lot of syllables there. Esculapius. He is the son of Apollo, and he was cut out of his mother's womb and kept alive while she, was, uh, she had died and was about to be burned on the funeral pyre. But Apollo managed to save him out of his mother's womb, and he was taught the healing arts by a centaur. Kind of interesting, right? At least that's the myth. That's the myth. So he is sort of their, the god over all the doctors, the doctor's <coughs> guild. Then there's Apollo, his father, and Hygieia, his daughter, which we get the word hygiene, hygiene which y'all are still learning, right? All right. And then panacea, from which we get the word panacea, which means something that cures everything, like essential oils. Not really. It does cure bad smells by making nice smells in the room, or at least cover them up. And it does cure dryness, dry skin by moistening it. All right, got those characters? And what are the terms? Let's write this down, the terms of the covenant. Be loyal to other doctors. That's the first term. Second term, do no harm. Do no harm. That's the essential term of this entire covenant. In particular, what types of harm may he not do? He may not abort babies or administer poisons, which probably means euthanize elderly people. Get tired of old grandma and grandpa. You know, they're just, you know, the chocolate chip cookies just aren't worth it anymore. They're, uh, you just slip them a little poison, get the physician to give them a little poison, put them, put them to sleep, make them go night-night, little hemlock. Well, that's how pagan cultures were. They were very much like that. But here in classical Athens, there was a, a bit of a, a, a resistance or a reversal to that very common pagan practices. And remember, we're in classical Athens right now. We're not in ancient Athens with the Trojan War and the Iliad and the, the gods and goddesses like, uh, you remember, Achilles and, and, and whatnot. We're later on in history during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah during what's called classical Athens where philosophy is thriving. And it's a little more evolved than the, uh, the ancient Athens. And so here there is a, a resistance to abortion and euthanasia. Doesn't mean they're Christian. Even non-Christian societies get some things right. Right? Like we all, I, even uh, our godless American culture knows that racism is wrong. They just hadn't figured out that pulling baby parts is wrong. But eventually, they will, there will be a resurgence and they'll start to see that. Okay. <clears throat> all right, other terms, they have to preserve life. I mean, save it if you can. Another term is to let specialists do their work. Don't try to be jack of all trades. Another term is don't trick people. I like that. And don't teach anyone the healing arts that hasn't sworn this oath. And keep confidence. Any uh, secrets that you learn. 
All right. Now, let's get into uh, the worldview discussion. What about doctors today? What about doctors today? Do they keep our information private? Probably not. I'm sorry? Probably not. No, it goes onto a computer, and onto the internet, and it's shared with the uh, federal government and the state government and various healthcare agencies. It is anything but private. That's not even to mention hackers and and uh, insurance companies and anyone who buys our particular information. No, it's not kept very private at all. Right? Well, what about do they protect the life of preborn babies? No, that's laughable. Of course not. Of course not. They are intentionally trying to um, encourage the murder of babies in all of their universities and in all their various guilds and organizations. What about the elderly? No, there's states in our own union, Oregon, for example, where euthanasia is legal. Canada, it's legal. And it's oftentimes thought of as a merciful and wonderful thing to help someone commit suicide. It's called euthanasia. It's a terrible evil. Now, do doctors today in our country serve their patients for their own good and not for money or for compliance to the tyrant? Mm. It's questionable, yeah. I mean, some do, I imagine, and some don't. Some do and some don't. But are there examples of doctors not doing things for the good of the patient, but for the good of the money and the good of their firm and the good of the insurance bills? Of course, yes, I know several of them, honestly. I know quite a few of them. My, uh, my mother-in-law was killed by one of them. So when we think of the, the modern-day uh, medical establishment and some of the trends... Like, for example, we may not know everything that's going on in healthcare, but after they sell the parts of little babies, it's after that point that you stop what? Trusting. You stop trusting them and giving them benefit of the doubt, which, of course, we should not. We should not trust them, not supremely, and we should not give them the benefit of the doubt. As an organization, they've proven themselves to be quite wicked and demonic. Um, however, we might trust individual doctors here and there and uh, talk to them privately. And it's sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We both know we're resisting the evil tyrant. But um, uh, go ahead and shut that door while we talk about this. Turn the mics off. Hopefully you find a doctor like that. You know, I've found some like that over the years. But even though our, our government uh, agencies and our healthcare agencies and much of our medical practices are more like Herod than Christ... Right? More like Hitler than Mother Teresa. Um, it's surprising how many, even Christians, blindly follow the healthcare industry. Just blindly follow it. Why do you think, what would be the motivation for people to blindly follow such, obviously, a, such an obviously wicked industry? Why would someone blindly follow that? Marie? Laziness, um, eh, maybe, maybe. Ignorance? Ignorance, definitely sometimes it's ignorance. And a, a version of ignorance or a species of ignorance, what we might call superstition. Right, Jackson? Well, they have a monopoly on the Yeah, there is quite a bit of a monopoly. That's, you know, they're connected to the tyrant, to the federal government. And so, of course, they have a monopoly, and so they're able to um, control the, the information. As well, which keeps people ignorant and superstitious. Benjamin? They're being um, paid by the. There's a lot of money involved here, but a lot of it, guys, is fear. You know, when you're sick and you're, you get desperate and you get afraid and you're willing to 
go to a Benny Hinn rally and maybe he'll put his hand on your forehead and knock you out and heal you. You're, you're, you're willing to try anything. Right? You're willing to try anything. And so uh, the fear, the ignorance, the lack of trust in God, it, it does make people compliant. It makes people compliant. It's unfortunate. Well, let's get back to our oath, the Hippocratic Oath. Who's the author? No one's quite sure, but maybe it was a man by the name of Hippocrates. Lived in classical Athens during the life of Socrates around the 400s B.C. Same time as Aristophanes and the clouds and Euripides and the various plays we're reading right now. This is a little after the Trojan War, during the Peloponnesian War, right around that time period. And the purpose of this covenant is to guide the followers of Aesculapius. And his followers were called Aesculapiads. We might call them healers or doctors or pharmacists today. That was the name of the guild practicing the medical arts or the healing arts, the Aesculapiads. Nah, you can look at it on the, uh, on the oath there. And the significance of this oath, there's three or four things. Let me list them for you. First of all, ancient Greece... Their culture was like a lot of ancient cultures, a lot of prehistoric cultures. They, their medicine or their healing was done by witch doctors. So in the time of the Trojan War, and, and certainly before that, you had shamans or medicine men. Have you all heard of that before? Mm-hmm. Witch doctors. Wild-eyed, you know, little off sort of people that would engage in satanic rituals and occultic practices and you know, make witches bruise and you know, get a toad's toad's head mixed with the feather of a of a crane and the hair of a baby and make these weird medicinal potions and magics and 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 speak in weird gibberish uh, and and basically demonic black magic medicine. So that's that was true in ancient um, Celtic culture with the Druids. It's true in ancient Greek culture. There's uh, sort of a like a, a primitive paganism where you have a medicine man who uses various potions to heal you. And you can see that in our own country. We're reverting back to that witchcraft paganism to some extent. This is why people believe that oils can, can heal you from barrenness and why they believe rocks and crystals can can uh, balance out your chakras. This we're, we're sort of reverting back to that. And so you get a lot of superstitious paganism in a lot of medical practices. You can go into quote-unquote doctor's offices today and they will do things in there that are very similar to what witch doctors did. Right? And uh, if you find a new age healer, they're going to do literally occultic demonic practices on you like Reiki and other healing uh, demonic things. But... In, a, in sort of a, a revolution or a, a resistance to that sort of a medicine came the philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And these aren't Christians, but like I said, remember, even non-Christian societies can have a backlash against certain evils. Even a non-Christian society can know that abortion is wrong or slavery is wrong. They're just not usually consistent. And so with the birth of these philosophers and the rise of the philosophical movement came the idea that we should um, gather knowledge and grow in knowledge. Now, where did these philosophers get this idea? No one's quite sure, but my bet is that it was Plato um, and his 
um, journeys throughout Egypt where he came into contact with the writings of Moses. That would be my theory. But no one's quite sure where they came up with certain ideas, like the prime mover, and that we can um, grow in knowledge, and that the world is ordered and rational. Um, But some people speculate that it's because they came into contact with the writings of Moses. But anyway, uh, they did believe that you could learn things. So Escapolis, for example, the, the, uh, the, and his, his followers, they would, they would grow in their understanding of things like anatomy or the nervous system or the skeletal structure of a human. Wouldn't it be nice to know a little bit about the skeletal structure if you're going to try to heal someone of a broken leg? Now, whereas a witch doctor might say some incantations and uh, spread some oils on you and smoke some junk and dance around the room, what you really need is someone who knows how to set a splint and put that bone straight again because they know a little bit about bones. So this philosophical movement created the, the philosopher doctor. Not Christian yet, but they, they began to learn certain things about the body and about uh, medicine and learn what started taking notes, you know, and, and, and keeping track of things. It, wouldn't it be nice to know if you found something that actually worked to cure the hiccups, that someone would write that down so that other people can know? So they began to write things down and grow in their knowledge. And, uh, and this Hippocratic Oath comes out of that particular movement. So that's one of the most significant things about this, this oath. The Hippocratic Oath seems to mark a transition point from shamans to philosopher doctors. Everyone following? Another important thing is that it lays the foundation for doctors taking self-maledictory oaths in order to restrain them from misuse of their power that they have over patients. So it begins the practice of doctors taking oaths, and it begins the practice, or at least sort of is a, a good historical benchmark for when we think of doctors getting trained in medical schools where there has been an accumulation of knowledge. You want there to be an accumulation of knowledge. That knowledge is stored and there's experts in it and they train people in particular schools in that particular field of knowledge, right? You want your doctor to know some things. And so this sort of marks the beginning of that all the way back here 2,500 years ago. And um, the main thing about this oath is that it establishes the policy of, of uh, a doctor as one of doing no harm. They're not to poison. They're not to abort. They're to do no harm. They're to use their scalpel for good and not evil. And I do believe, just as a larger conversation, all of these philosophical categories... Remember, we learned that the philosophers, they weren't Christians, and in many ways, if their philosophies were put into practice, it would destroy the world. I mean, basically, all the evil empires we've ever had are people putting the philosopher's ideas into practice. But with that being said, they do have some good things that they begin to set in place, like Aristotle's laws of thought that we study in logic, for example. So with this this philosophical movement and all of these various innovations in medicine and in, in comedy and tragedy and writing and rhetoric and logic and philosophy and, as we're going to see in a little while, in political theory, right? All of these things begin to set the stage for for Greece to become a global empire and for Alexander the Great to carry that culture all over the Mediterranean world, which I believe basically sets the stage for Christianity. Because as you read, think about this, you read um, uh, 
You're, we're reading right now the clouds and how it attacks the philosophers and it attacks the sophists. But does it offer any solutions? No. Or you read the Bacchae, um, where it shows the futility of the Dionysian cult and their perversions and their party lifestyle. And it also shows the imp- impotency of the, of the, uh, the Spartan Stoic um, you know, law and order lifestyle. But did it offer any solutions? It's my contingency that these, these Greek, the Greeks asked a lot of questions and they opened up a can on a lot of things, but that this was God moving and raising them up to, set the, to basically set the, the um, stage for Christianity to show up and actually have the answer to all of these questions, which is one of the reasons why Christianity spread all over the Mediterranean world very quickly and took over Rome by the year three or 400. Okay, so we're not praising Hippocrates. We're not praising Iscalaeus. We're not praising these things. We're trying to see how God began to set the stage for uh, Christianity to come in and establish hospitals with an even more godly and wise moral code than what you have right here before you. Everyone see that? All right. So let's move on a little bit and talk about Nazi doctors. Well, let's just talk about doctors in general. Are Nazi doctors moral or immoral? Immoral. Landon says Nazi doctors are moral. In their medical ways. Really? So you would say when a Nazi doctor was um, plunging a Jew into ice-cold water and measuring the time at which it took for him to die of hypothermia and then injecting his organs with boiling hot water to measure how, how fast he could be revived, that that would have been a moral act? No. Okay. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. But um, I think, and I don't know if Landon is getting at this, in some sense, that is a moral act. It only depends on what? It depends, yes, it depends on the moral code. It depends on their law. When we say something is moral or immoral, what is our standard? The Bible, of course, because God, uh, God's character is demonstrated and manifest in the law of God in the Bible, and that's how we know if something's moral or immoral. But if you're a Nazi, you don't believe in the Christian God, so what's your standard? What is God for um, modern Western Europe flowing from the philosophies of Rousseau. You can tell me this. You learned it last year. What is God? Humans, Humans, but in particular, is the individual human or the collective man in the state? Collective. Collective man is the God. And for the state of Germany in Nazism, it's the collective state. In particular, it's the collective German state, the national state. So that was their brand of socialism. But all of that flows from Rousseau, the French Revolution, Satan himself. And so, in, a, in the sense, Nazis experimenting on Jews or even experimenting on handicapped people or grandmas or even other Germans is moral as long as it serves what? The God. The collective German state. The Nazi state. So, that is... in. Exactly what Nazis were doing, and I want you to understand the word for this. It's called, there's two things. First term is utilitarian. Utilitarianism is an ethical code. It is a moral code. 
You can determine if something is moral or immoral according to utilitarianism or moral or immoral according to the law of God. Utilitarianism says that as long as the ends are good, then it's okay how you get there. The ends justify the means. Have you ever heard that before? So as long as you make an A on the test, it don't really matter what you do to get it. That's utilitarianism. As long as you find the cure for dandruff, it doesn't matter how many Jews you have to decapitate. It's utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. Of course, this denies the existence of God and His revealed law, right? It denies the existence of God who says... You can't put certain types of seed in the ground and expect a good harvest. I will not be mocked. You think the ends justify the means. God says, no, trust me, I'm not going to let you uh, win this on me. I will not be mocked. So this denies the existence of a God, a God that rules sovereignly over the world according to his law. This is utilitarianism. And when you do things with utilitarianism, it always leads to totalitarianism which is another word for tyranny. Like a father can't use sinful means to get his children to do their homework. God will not be mocked in that sense. Understand? That's utilitarianism. And the Nazis justified their use of the scalpel to do evil by saying our goals and what we get out of it works. We find out For example, how long a German soldier can stay in the ice water because we've done the experiments on the Jews in the concentration camps. And we find out how how to revive the German soldier. See, that's how they justified it. Okay, But it gets worse than that. This is the next term you need to understand. That's consequentialism. Even after thousands of years of taking the Hippocratic Oath, we see the Nazi doctors reviving satanic pagan practices again and establishing new ethical codes. Why? Because oaths can only monitor and restrain a religious and moral people. If they're evil, like Nazis, they don't listen to the Hippocratic Oath. They don't care about that. So consequentialism is a little bit worse than utilitarianism. It basically says as long as you have good intentions, then it's okay to do it. As long as your ideals are good. So when Dr. Fauci experimented on beagles by um, putting their head in cases filled with uh, fruit flies and and measuring how long it took for the fruit flies to eat the skin off their skulls, I would say that's consequentialism. Because what he believed was his vision, his agenda, his goals, in his mind justified his behavior. When he went out of his way to experiment on foster children, um, he was being a consequentialist. You can tell what I think about that guy. And uh, and God will take care of him soon enough. This consequentialism, you can see in the way our, our government treats the poor, for example. The government might have an ideal, like we want the poor to, uh, to be able to own their own home. And so they'll begin to pass policies and laws which bankrupt the society and actually make things worse for the poor. But it's okay because you know what? We had good ideals. We had good thoughts in our heart. We had good intentions. So whatever we do, it doesn't matter. That's consequentialism. Get it? 
All right. Um, this consequentialism and utilitarianism led to what is called the Nuremberg Code. We're talking about medical codes here in oaths. This is the next one, the Nuremberg Code. Nuremberg is N-U-R-E-M-B-U-R-G. The Nuremberg, Co- Nuremberg Code. Can you spell N-U-R-E-M-B-U-R-G Code. The Nuremberg Code. And it basically was a oath that doctors had to swear in a part of law that you were not allowed to experiment on people without their consent. That sounds good, right? Should you be able to experiment on people if they don't give you permission to do so? No. No. And, um, well... Hard to say if our government is following the Nuremberg, Nuremberg Code or not, but it sure seems like they are forcing uh, certain things on people without consent, and uh, that's been going pretty hard since 2020. So, as you can see, just from our lecture, Hippocratic Oath, Nuremberg Code, God's Law, um, doctors, the medical establishment, can be ministers of Christ to do good to their fellow man, right? Or they can be tyrants. They can be Nazis. And uh, the question is still out. The verdict is still out. Which way our country is going to go? Will we as a society learn from the millennia of doctors taking the Hippocratic Oath to stop aborting babies? Will we learn that? Or will will we regress back into witch doctory or Nazism? Or continue doing that? Or will our doctors... And maybe some of you will be doctors one day, be ministers of Christ, loving God and neighbor, and obeying his law so that you use the scalpel for good and not evil. Amen? All right. All right. That's it for today.